Welcome to the Starfire Codes podcast, where we discuss metaphysics, survival, the media, and the truth. I'm your host, Amy Pitchell. Today, we're here talking to Jason Olburn. Jason is the presenter of Compass on TNT Radio. He's the host of World Series News and the owner of A Million Mums for Informed Consent. He was also a candidate in the 2022 Australian federal election. He works toward challenging the mainstream narrative by demonstration and explanation of detail and data. In his work, he has interviewed hundreds of people, including doctors, politicians, lawyers, academics, economists, and clergy. Jason Olburn, part one. Jason, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you on. Jamie, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, Tell us a bit about yourself. You recently ran for federal office in Australia in 2022. Uh, Give us an idea of your background in politics and what it was like on the Australian campaign trail in the wake of massive political upheaval all over the world. Uh, What made you decide to run? Look, I I ran out of necessity, really. I think there was no other way. I couldn't find anyone that I trusted in my local electorate uh, in uh, Newcastle, New South Wales. Uh, that I trusted that would have more of a, an understanding of what was going on. So there were a few of us and there are multiple different election, uh, electorates in the area uh, around where I am. And uh, there were many like-minded people who wanted to do that. But I had um, some political experience in the past. I um, had uh, was actually uh, part of the left um, party here in Australia, the Labor Party, uh, many years ago. Uh, That was kind of my upbringing. Uh, I was there for probably um, seven or eight years and walked away when it was actually a a sitting member of parliament asked me to support someone who I knew was openly corrupt. Wow. And I said, that person, yeah, exactly. And I said, that person will go to jail. They laughed at me, uh, the people in the room. I picked up up my backpack and left. It was a branch meeting and uh, I never turned my back and um, I never heard from anyone ever again from that party. I was uh, quite um, popular in there. They were talking about me as running as a candidate. I actually stood uh, to be a pre-selection candidate in that party. And uh, that person that I suggested would go to jail did. Um, And uh, it was a famous collapse in New South Wales state politics at the time. So I was quite jaded by politics in general at that stage. But um, years later, my my mother uh, passed away from um, a severe case of cancer. But during that period of her diagnosis, and she was um, uh, a nurse, so she had a lot of um, uh, knowledge and technical experience and connections, her, her cancer diagnosis was that severe. It was in her heart that um, I said to her one day, look, I've just discovered that um, cannabis can be useful in, in, in eating cancer cells. Are you interested in doing some research on this and perhaps trying some medicine? And she said, I'll do, I'll try anything. And so we did, and it was quite successful. We extended her life. We didn't save it, but uh, we extended it four times longer than her, her prognosis. Wow, uh, that's that, amazing. It, yeah, it was, uh, it, it truly, truly was. And we were literally, it was a bit like, um, and I admit it now, it was a bit like Breaking Bad. We had to make this uh, medicine in our backyard because there was nothing oh my around. Gosh. <laughs> and, wow. um, and and her GP at the time totally supported what she was saying um, and uh, and they could tell that there was a difference and she was having some uh, chemotherapy and they couldn't work out why she was actually doing better than expected. Um, so that was interesting. But the best part of it um, was that she had no side effects from the chemotherapy. Apart from losing her hair, she was perfectly healthy the next day. The um, it took away all of her, um, her her sickness that you expect to get from chemo, uh, to the point where they told her she'd be sick for a week, and she was um, she'd take her medicine morning and night, her cannabis medicine, and she had no side effects at all. She'd get up if she felt like it. She even went to work, went out, went on the boat, did all sorts of things. So she lived a really good uh, terminal diagnosis, if that's such a thing. 
Um, but it was the um, Australian Hemp Party, they're now called the Legalised Cannabis Party, that approached me and asked me to support them and run for the Senate. This is back in 2013 and again in 2016. And, of course, I said, oh, you've helped me. Of course, I'm going to help you. So that was my second taste in politics. And my third taste was um, completely the other way. 2016 onwards, the, uh, the, 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 the Trump election, let's say, it, it changed me um, drastically because I realised that uh, despite being a Sanders supporter, but he he capitulated, as we all know, at the convention, I went into a deep, dark depression for about five months. And then one of my uh, friends contacted me and said, you need to watch this speech from Donald Trump at the uh, Al Smith charity dinner back in uh, just 10 days before the election. And I watched it and I thought it was the greatest political speech of all time, even though it was a roast, because I realised that we still had a very faint glimmer of hope that Hillary wasn't going to be elected, who even as a, as a person on that side of politics who loved Bill Clinton back in the day, I, I saw Hillary as the absolute um, you know, antichrist of politics at that point. So when Trump got elected, that changed me uh, and I was very, very happy that um, uh, that there was an anti-establishment candidate, an outlier that got in, and I felt like we had a bit of hope, and it looked good for a long time, and of course, um, you know, we didn't see the swamp drain, which is what everyone wanted, um, but fast forward, and we saw the COVID era play out, I was... Um, uh, getting into sort of my own media at the time and um, and was reporting on the COVID stats and was getting a huge uh, reaction because I was showing that they were nothing like what we were being told. And of course, our, um, you know, our freedoms being um, uh, taken away from us and the rallies that were going on, I had to run and uh, I, I chose to run for the United Australia Party, um, which was um, uh, run by Clive Palmer, who's probably one of Australia's famous um, uh, mining magnates. Uh, you know, a very wealthy man that had, had been elected to Parliament himself in 2013, served one term. And uh, he'd uh, recruited Craig Kelly, who was very, very prominent in Australia at promoting, you know, COVID statistics, etc. So um, it was a it was a good move. Uh, it didn't play out the way we expected. I, I spent a lot of money on my own money running the campaign. I'm glad I did it. But um, unfortunately, we were only able to get one person elected into the Senate, uh, Senator Ralph Babette, who's a friend of mine, which is nice, but uh, we, we need a lot more going on there. But that was the reason that I got involved. Um, and I feel like if you want something done, you ask a busy person, and that was me. So that's why I chose to do it. Absolutely. Are Are you planning to run again? Look, I would like to think that my political career is over. Um, it, it, it's very, very taxing. It's it's truly a, a really, really hard business, despite putting all your money where your mouth is and uh, going on with it. To give an example, just in, in, in the area where I live, it's 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 a, a working class area. It's surrounded by coal mines that are now transitioning out of them and we're cutting away our energy, doing all this self-sabotage that's going on. I um I spent, you know, well over $30,000 of my own money. Um, my car tires got punctured seven separate times. Um, wow. damage, yeah, damage to um, um, uh, volunteers' homes that put signs up. You know, quite shocking. And and you know who's doing it. Um, and it's just this this lethal, horrible, um, dirty politics. And they think because they're in power that they can do whatever they want and tread on you. And this is the irony of politics: is that people look up to these people as some sort of saviors, and they are nasty horrible people. And word I've got from other people that I know in, in Parliament, they say the same thing. It's a cesspit. Um, people are all in it for their own interests. The, the amount of work that you need to get in there, whether you get in on your own accord as, a, as an outlier and you get a miracle run in, or whether you become a party apparatchik and, and do what the party says and effectively become compromised, you're owned anyway. And once they get in, the power just takes over and you have a really horrible situation. So 
a lot would have to happen. I think mine for now is um, is is working as hard as I can in the media and um, being able to explain the the situation in the big picture and then hopefully it will lead to an eventual exposure and collapse of the corruption and at that point it would be a very different time to join a new creation in a new era of politics and then of course the door would be wide open if if the world were to wake up but it's so corrupt that it's really hard for anyone who's not a billionaire um, to run themselves and that's why even with Trump going through absolute hell at the moment you can see how difficult it really is and look at someone as good as Tulsi Gabbard uh, who's also stepped away from politics although I do expect she may make an, an appearance fairly soon if, if uh, RFK Jr can get some more traction I think that she may well be um, his running mate and that would be pretty exciting. That would be really exciting so as you mentioned you also come from a background in media Tell us mm. about your work with Compass on TNT and with World Series News. Yes, yeah, so um, when, when I started during the Trump era, I was posting very heavily on Facebook and getting a fair bit of traction, but I noticed that a lot of people were doing quite well um, doing videos, and I knew that it took a fair bit of effort. And so I um, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a video here because, you know, 100 likes on a post is great, but you need to get a bit more, you know, traction. So there was a... Um, there was a lady who was doing a lot of work and she was getting cancelled all the time on, on Facebook. And uh, I reached out to her and I said, look, would you be interested in doing an interview? I'm going to start my first show. And she goes, well, I can't because I'm on Facebook. I said, don't worry, come in on my platform, tell all your friends and they can watch anyway. So I did this first show and and, and unbelievably, um, I she couldn't hear what I was, oh no, she could hear what I was saying. Well, with the one way there was, con- whatever it was, audio was lost one way or another. I think it was that's right. She couldn't hear me on on the, the first ever Zoom interview. <laughs> Unbelievable. So I was texting her the questions and speaking. And oh, it was live. Wow. <laughs> Literally. And we did this interview for an hour and it worked perfectly. No one else could tell. Um, and it picked up 5,000 views, my first ever video. And I thought, oh, this is easy. So um, I just thought I'll keep going. But uh, it was all her, of course, because it was her audience that uh, that brought the, the, the crowd in. But then I realised that I was getting traction on certain stories and I went from, you know, 5,000, then I had a few, you know, 300 views, not very good. And then um, uh, I think it was, um, I don't remember what, the, what it was, but I, I had a 10,000 view video and then a 20 and then a 50 and then, I broke a 200,000 views on a YouTube one day. I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, this game is just easy. You know, it'll be on a million views at any time from now. And then the blocks started to come in, YouTube and um, and, and Facebook. That was the first round. So then I, I closed down my Facebook channel and opened up a, a new one. So I thought that's legit because they had this weird thing. You couldn't have more than one profile. So I thought I'll close one and start a new one and get rid of all those bands and do it differently. And this time I took COVID on head on. Um, and I was reporting daily on the statistics and they were getting huge traction and I was only using official data, um, only taking official, everything was official, official. I didn't want to get taken out for anything. So when one particular day I had a, a little story, it was um, both the New South Wales health uh, officer at the time and the Victorian, they're both the assistants, but they used to do these news broadcasts every day and tell you how many people died, how many people got COVID, all of that crap that they would report every day. So the New South Wales lady gets on first and she basically said 27 out of 30 people um, who died from COVID today were vaccinated. And then so 90% were vaccinated. And then the Victorian fellow came on and said that basically the the same statistics percentage-wise but slightly different numbers. So my headline of my story was vaccine catastrophe, it's the vaccinated that are dying. So it turned out that these people watching from Victoria 
thought that the Victorian had misspoke and said it was 90% unvaccinated who died. And so they said, oh, look, he misspoke and therefore your report's completely wrong. And I said, hang on a second, what? how do you explain away the New South Wales data? And they didn't. So I was getting attacked on one side and on the other side it was perfectly legit. And as it turns out, it is 90% of the vaccinated that were dying from COVID anyway. So my report stands and I refuse to take it down. And I don't actually think that that report was um, taken off, but many, many others were, including quotes I had used on video of the Prime Minister of Australia at the time. And I just quoted that and they took them down because they didn't suit the narrative because he spoke at the time and said, compulsory vaccination is not part of Australia. Wow. And they said that. So, so he... They took it down for that. He was quoted saying this, and and they still removed it anyway. You were directly quoting an official. It was a video I showed of him, and they took it down. They didn't accept that. Yeah, and I got a – that was YouTube. And the way YouTube works is is kind of different to Facebook. Facebook takes something down, they ban you. You know, they start with one day, three days, seven days, and then 30, and then rolling 30. And then they introduce that um, lower in the um, the, the, – what do you call it? In the feed. So it's like a a 90-day shadow ban. And then they mix them up. Whereas YouTube is you get one strike, you're out for a week, two strikes, you're out for two weeks, three strikes, they cancel your channel. And so it it cancels itself over a 90-day period. So it's kind of like a driver's license when you have demerit points. So it's a little bit different. So basically what happens on on YouTube, if you have a bad run, you rest YouTube, you don't put anything up for a few weeks and just let it cancel itself out and start again. But what's happened at YouTube for me now is I have 7,500 subscribers, not very many, but I'm completely shadow banned. I'm lucky to get 20 views on a video now. It's just embarrassing when I used to get hundreds of thousands. So, you know, it's the same thing. So you kind of got to work out how you now play in the social media space. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and with um with all of the uh the different types of shadow bans and bans and and shutting down accounts. And I had the same thing happen with my Twitter account. I had my Twitter account shut down for reporting on um on Andreas Nowak when he was talking mm. about the graphene in the shots. Yep. And um and he uh he passed away the next day. They were saying that he had been murdered. You know, um, I'm yep. not sure whether that was the case or not, but that's what they were saying. And um my my account got shut down and it was reinstated recently after Twitter changed over. So we're having a lot of that too, where you know, people's accounts are getting reinstated, you know, after changeovers and things like that, or um, or also um I've heard that you know YouTube isn't being as severe with the uh, with the bans at this point, so they're not censoring as much now. Whether that's true or not, you know that remains to be seen. But um, yeah, hearsay kind of a thing that they're not banning as much anymore. Well, the story that came out last week was that uh, they had decided to not ban anything that was criticising the 2020 election results. That was that was the, the leap forward. They actually released that announcement. Whether they're doing that on a, on a wider, broader basis is interesting. Um, it, it's quite tiring because I, I have put videos up on YouTube that have literally had seven views and they get taken down. And I'm like, how could you possibly have even seen that? I mean, there are yeah. videos that come down after 100,000 views, but seven views. So clearly someone's watching my work. Um, and it's based on fact. Um, you, you don't bother, you know, making videos of just, um, you know, conspiracy making up numbers. You don't do that. Um, there's no point. There's no value in it. So it's it's just a, a strange anomaly in what's going on. But I, I hope that they're feeling the pressure um, from the Elon Musk-led Twitter, although 
the uh, the new CEO um, has taken over there, so I expect that Twitter will sort of then bend back the other way soon, um, and and we'll see what happens there. But at least with that, um, uh, you know, freeing up a little bit on Twitter, you can say a little bit more now. Um, but you can see that they're all clamouring for um, for user time. So Twitter needs more people on there, needs to sell more ads. So they've got to, you know, at least let that happen. Um, and uh, and you can tell, like these days on Facebook, it's it's kind of like a ghost town. It's a very different beast than what it was five years ago for us. Absolutely, and and a lot of the people who left, um, they you know, as they were um, being banned for thirty days, and then the rolling thirty days. They just decided not to use it anymore and left, and they went mm. to other platforms like Telegram, and uh, and some of them stayed with Twitter, but you know, not not very many. Um, they went over to Truth, and they went over to Getter, a lot of them, mm. and um, and reestablished there. But um, the different audiences are are very different according to the different platforms, obviously, and um, it's not as much traction on any of these spaces as it used to be, especially with um, with YouTube rolling out the shorts. They're trying to compete with TikTok. And mm-hmm. even people who have well-established, you know, um, accounts with millions of followers are not getting as much traction right now because it's diminished because they're putting all of that toward boosting the shorts. So mm-hmm. they want that short content to uh, to compete with TikTok. And at the same time, they're they're pushing strange censorship in weird areas. Like for for example, um, in tarot readings, you know, some of the tarot cards will have you know some kind of cartoon nudity on it, and they're they're um, cracking down on that and on um, on profanity a lot more than they used to. So you know um, that those are ways to look out for it that you know are, are coming in from the other side saying that yeah they're mm. definitely um, censoring more. And then I guess some people are getting censored less now because um, those topics are not top of mind at this point. So I guess we'll see how it shakes out, you know? Mm. It's, um, isn't it interesting that everyone's complaining about the lack of engagement? And so like anything, it becomes a real pyramid type of approach that we're all sitting at the bottom of this pyramid. And as you climb it, fewer and fewer people get that um, that uh, traction. And, uh, and, and most of us are out there trying to, um, pro- you know, provide um a, a narrative uh, facts information that explains the situation that we're in so you can really see the stranglehold that the mainstream media holds and and also what i find fascinating about that is is how low the numbers are in mainstream media and yet they still hold this stranglehold over people it's kind of like um a separate divide in the general public. It's if people will only want to, on the mainstream side of things, associate with things that are recognised. And so we have a, a problem here of what I call credentialism. Um, yes. That if you if you don't have a credential, then you know who are you? So people would argue with me, for example, about um, you're not a doctor. How do you know about these stats? I go, mate, it's called reading the um, the health records that are publicly available and interpreting them. In other words, if 99 people have had vaccinations uh, and out of those 88 of them have died out of 89 deaths well it's pretty clear that you have a problem being vaccinated i mean it's not hard to work that out um and yet you then get a a confirmation bias or you get people who are who are buyers remorse and don't want to know that they're in trouble in that situation so that is a that is a really tricky one um in this situation i'll I'll give you an example that just happened today on australian news they announced that um they've they've got a, a skills shortage in australia even though um for three months, I was applying for some jobs 
uh, and I couldn't even get a rejection letter, let alone an interview for you know different work that I was qualified to do. Um, but they've announced that we've got such a skills shortage in Australia that uh, with the government through some universities are introducing micro courses to give people a little bit of a, a little bit of knowledge to get them into these jobs, right? Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe you know, if you're um, you know, something like, uh, let, let me think, what would be a, a reasonable job that you get a micro course in? I don't know, um, uh, you know, something that's non-difficult to do, but you need some sort of qualification, right? So think of an example. Well, what are they offering micro courses in? Nursing. They're offering Engin- a micro course in, in nursing? In nursing. So, so you're in a hospital and you say to the nurse, look, you didn't quite do that right. When did you get your education? Uh, yesterday. When did you start your education? Last week. I mean, that's a micro course. That's uh, terrifying. Engineering, Dean. Engineering, they're going to offer a micro course. And, and here's the thing. The nursing courses were in pandemic management. The engineering courses were in nuclear energy. And the education courses were in climate affairs. So oh, now wow. you're going to get people, now you're going to get people with two minutes, two minutes worth of education 90 seconds worth of experience applying credentialism who have no knowledge or experience that can only now do what the top down tells them to do. And that's credentialism working against us 101, which is the idea of what's going on. So you either go out and get educated in 50,000 different things and say you're qualified in everything, which no one can have the time to do or afford to do, um, or you just get pumped into this situation here. It's it's another form of um, narrative twisting and, um, and, and trying to push people away by saying that you're not qualified to speak. And I just find that completely unacceptable. And wouldn't you think that, you know, putting somebody in a position like that where, you know, they're they're pretty much destined to make some sort of mistake, but it's, you know, in in climate, in nuclear and in nursing, you know, mm. it, it provides an opportunity to throw somebody like this under the bus when something happens mm. that they've they've maybe planned or or something like that. I, I would kind of keep that filed in the back of my head that that sends off all sorts of warning bells for me. Oh, it's tr- truly shocking, but it's just a, yet another example of how the media doesn't question anything, just reports on it, and they look at it as if, oh, well, goodness me, what a great idea. We're going to fill our skill shortage by taking... Now, here's the point. If we're already, like they're saying in the United States, that woman the other day saying that there are 1.9 jobs available for every... Uh, 1.9 jobs per person, which is complete nonsense. They say the same <laughs> thing here. Who are you actually promoting? So to give them a micro course, someone who's, who's going to take a nursing micro course. Now, nursing, you only need a, a 50 or a 55 um, ATAR, like they'd be halfway down the list in terms of your academic credentials to qualify. So are you going to take, for example, an unskilled supermarket worker and say, go to this thing and go get a job to pay you an extra two, three, four, five dollars an hour to work in nursing in pandemic management. Like it doesn't make sense to me. Where are they going to recruit these people from? Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that the University of Western Sydney, near where I live um, in my state, is is an expanding university. It's not what they call a a brownstone. It's more of a a modern university. But they got in trouble a few years ago for their nursing graduates unable to speak English. Now, how is that possible? You do an Australian nursing degree, but you can't speak English. Now, this university is the first to put its hand up to teach some of these micro courses. So here's the problem is is that in all of this um, pursuit of credentialism, their standards fall through the floor. And this is really, really dangerous. So why not some micro courses in English? 
<laughs> use those. Well, I'm pretty sure I've done a few micro courses in uh, in swearing in other languages because that's the first thing you learn, right? Exactly. Is, uh, how do you say this in German or, or French or, or, or Hebrew or something like that? So, yeah, so maybe that's where it starts. It's uh, it's frightening, though. It, it's really, it really frightening. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about A Million Mums for Informed Consent. How did this idea come about and what's the ongoing mission of the group and what kind of movement have you seen since it was implemented? Okay, so um, this was set up um, after watching um, ex-Pfizer CEO, um, oh, goodness me, his name escapes me. Everyone knows who he is. He did a video, uh, and I'll remember the name in a minute, that he explained what he saw coming. Um, that the pandemic, the vaccine passports and all of this stuff. And this is a few years ago now. So I um, I remember going going to bed and kind of meditating on that night. What am I going to do? To, to what, How do we get ourselves out of this mess? And I woke up and I said to my wife, look, there's two things we can do here. One, we have to go after Anthony Fauci because that is, um, you know, that's the head of the snake and it's pretty obvious what he's doing and put as much pressure as we can. He's still saying that the um, at the time that the virus was, you know, um, uh, zoonotic origin, the, the Wuhan wet lab, and we all knew it came from a lab. And, and today, 99.9% of people say it came from a lab, but they like to tell you that it's accidental, inverted commas, and not go any further, because if it was let out deliberately, well, that changes everything. All of authority at that point were either new or were in on this thing. And I think that's the biggest trigger of all, and we haven't quite got there. And the other side of it was, I said, we have to have a grassroots campaign. And um, it was my late mother who used to say to me, um, no one gets between a lioness and her cubs. Um, and that's when I figured that what we need to do is talk to the mums here to not vaccinate their children. It's one thing for an adult to choose their own, but to forcibly inject a child who the statistics already show were at no risk of this virus, why you would inject them with experimental mRNA vaccine at this point. And so that's what we set out to do. We built up a... Um, uh, a very quick following on Facebook, 20,000 uh, people. And uh, I just learned this week, actually, on the show, I interviewed one of my uh, colleagues and friends, Alan Hashem, who set up another group called Our Voices Matter. And they were chronicling, um, at the time, vaccine injury. And Maria Z was working with him, and they were going out and speaking to people who'd been injured by the jab. He did two episodes. Uh, they were shared on Infowars and other places. They got millions of views, and then he was taken out um completely and uh furthermore uh he there was another story that he talks about on my radio show that um his neighbor a young boy were on a farm that he lived at went missing the day that this all broke um and uh and this little boy came back three days later um just appeared three days later so it was quite concerning that um what was going on uh and whether or not it was related there's enough evidence to suggest there was something very strange going on um but he was quite uh, very very clever in the information that he put out in the public domain um and he, and and the little boy came home so that was that was quite scary but that's what was going on now he's the reason we talked about this particular story was that he had just uncovered through another person on twitter that his group had been specifically targeted by the Australian government to uh, wrote to big tech and uh, requested that his site be taken out. And it's literally written there, our voices matter, in an email. So that's how close we were. So if he was taken out, it's pretty sure that they were after mine as well, a million mums for informed consent. So we were taken out on Facebook. We made a lot of inroads in the rally season le leading up to the elections. Um, we we reset up the group, but I think at that stage the horse had bolted. But there was another group that had started, and I also became friends with um, Adam Gibson over at Parents with Questions, and he had a lot more profile than we did, um, and he had a lot more um, 
financial input. There was some celebrities, some rock stars involved, and they sort of they took the baton from us at that stage, and we sort of worked together in that place. But um, what A Million Mums is today provides a lot of information for homeschooling, um, which has become very, very popular. Um, and in fact, it was the number one inquiry and still is on our website. It's all about homeschooling. And where I live in, in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales is actually the largest homeschooling community in the country now, I'm told. And to give you an example, last, um, I think it was last June or July, the um, the parents put together a school, a homeschool athletics carnival, and it was attended by well over 300 children um, who turned up at a, at a local field and performed all the different uh, activities that you do at an athletics carnival. And then they had a swimming carnival um, early this year that was also well attended, um, which is quite fascinating. So the, the homeschooling process has been a very big deal. Uh, my kids are all homeschooled. They're, they're thriving. They love it. Um, their schooling times half. Their activities increase. And uh, that's been one of the big, the big deals here. And most people who start to look at it, uh, wondering what they do with their kids, uh, want to try a difference and realise just what a, what a change it is. It's quite incredible, actually, that um, if you have the resources, I would recommend to anyone to start looking into it and just exploring, because it's not about just mimicking the school curriculum at home. It's about choosing what you want to teach your kids. Obviously, there's you know some academic parts there, but it's about unschooling the kids. Um, which is a big deal because once you've done that and then you can uh, teach them other skills like we, we did cooking. Um, my One of my sons is a champion chess player in a, in a very short period of time. Um, obviously, they're, they're involved with a- athletics and sport and all sorts of different things. And um, you just notice that their skill set widens. And my 15-year-old now is working four days a week and he's learning a lot more because uh, he wasn't quite academic at school, but he's already picked a trade and he's pretty much now two years ahead uh, of, of his old friends at school who have to sit out to the end of year 12 before they can even take on a trade. Um, So there are so many differences uh, in in this. So in in all of this tragedy and difficulty, there's always a new narrative, a new way of life that uh, comes out of this. And all of it teaches us one major thing is about self-sufficiency. And I think that is the key to what we're experiencing in this hardship that's going on here is that all of us, you know, doing what you're doing, you know, launching your podcast, writing your incredible Substack articles, getting out there and talking to people. It might be a natural thing, but more and more of us are doing it and more and more are trying to do it and spending a lot more time at what is, I think at first it started for me as a hobby and now it's uh, it, it's a career. So it's the same approach we're doing with homeschooling. We're just finding what the kids' interests are and building them up um, and teaching them at, at a, an accelerated rate to allow them to, to do a whole lot more. So from a million mums, I'm really proud of the fact that it's done that. It's uh, it's a grassroots, tiny little thing. It, it costs no money to run. It just provides good information and, uh, and opens new doors for families that are looking for a bigger scale. So that's fantastic that it created um, something that has new life through the homeschooling mm. movement. And especially, you know, in a in a situation where so many families were looking for something to do with their kids because they didn't want to send them off if they didn't want to get them jabbed. They didn't want to send them off to school and they didn't want to have to have them tested every day, every week, you know, um, whatever the school required, whatever that district required. Mm. So um, there was a lot of call for that. And a lot of people chose to keep their kids home and they were wondering if they would have the same quality of education. And they're they're saying yes. So many of them are saying yes, whether it's um, homeschooling, unschooling, world schooling, there are so many different movements. And a lot of them, you know, uh, have dated back for years, but they're getting so much traction now. It's amazing. Yes. 
It, it really is. And the other thing I'll quickly mention about that is that the, the two things that you notice straight away in the homeschooling community is there's no age hierarchy. When you're at school, you mix with the kids in your year and a year above or two years above, you tend to only get the first touch, either if you know someone through a sibling or if there's a bully and a bully, an older bully will pick on a younger child. So the two things that we've eliminated is age hierarchy and bullying, which is a huge deal uh, that you don't want any kid to go through. But it seems that it's a scar or a rite of passage that children have to go through and learn this to get a thick skin. Now, I don't necessarily think my kids are a, a mollycoddle. They do boxing. <laughs> so <they're, laughs> yeah, got, so that's, a, that's another perspective, um, isn't it? So um, they're, they're learning other skills to counteract that. So you don't have to go through hell to learn how to have a thick skin. That's not how it works. Absolutely. And and to learn some kind of self-defense is always a welcome thing. And, and to learn the the discipline behind, you know, when and when not to use it. That that's mm. an amazing skill to have. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So it's it's a big deal. And uh, it was uh, actually through a, a, a personal friend who went through a few different um, fights, took my 15-year-old along. He just got into it, um, picked up the gloves, got a bag and started punching and the little ones are into it. And my little girl is really, really good. She's tiny, but she can pack a punch. That's amazing. <laughs> so it's nice to, yeah, it's nice to have that skill, isn't it? I wish I had had that skill when I was younger. Yeah, yeah, and and then it it offers you confidence in those kinds of situations where if somebody's coming up to you and and you know trying to bully you, you you're not going mm. to be taken in by it because you you feel like you can protect yourself if you need to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a really cool thing. So, as part of your overall research, you had mentioned you've been examining the risks of central bank digital currency. Can you first break down for our audience what the implementation of CBDC system would entail? Yeah, look, it's quite frightening, isn't it? Look, a story that's just popped up this week is that Gary Gensler, the SEC chairman, who used to work for the father of Carolyn Ellison from Alameda, and this is the connection. She was the girlfriend of Sam Bankman-Fried at um, FTX. So this is a very close-knit uh, little group here. So Gensler's fingerprints are all over FTX. Now, FTX has gone down for billions of dollars of you know corrupt business practices, et cetera. And of course, they were involved with Ukraine and sending crypto through the government. So they should not have had the connections that they'd done. Now, if you look at if you look at that story, and um, Bankman Fried's parents are both lawyers; they're connected to Hillary Clinton. It was pretty clear that this young kid was handpicked to set up this um, uh, crypto exchange and became quite powerful way too quickly. And anyone, as we know, that gets massive. Um, power, traction, money quickly has to be funded from someone. So we always put the controlled opposition radar on and worry about it. So this is a perfect example. So Gensler works with the father of Ellison um, at MIT, and he must know what he's setting up in all of this. Now Gensler, after FTX has gone down last week, went out and is suing Binance and CoinSpot separately for um, some uh, corrupt business practices. Now, at the time, these companies, because it's unregulated, they thought they were meeting with the Congress to discuss ways to start to put some you know, regulations in place and, and set a code of conduct. And instead, Gensler went straight after them. Now, interestingly, Gensler came out and said, we don't need cryptocurrency. Hang on a second. You just set up, you're involved with FTX. Now you don't need it now that they've gone. And he says, we already have a digital dollar. It's the US dollar. Wow. Now that's a massive, 
That's a massive statement. That is just this mm-hmm. week, and I reported on that in my show on um, uh, Friday where I interviewed Mitch Feierstein, uh, who's the author of um, Planet Ponzi, and it's probably worth checking out uh, if people want to check that out. But um, uh, so the idea is that a, set, a, a cryptocurrency, as we all know, is a decentralised currency it doesn't have you know a centralized central bank system it's basically it's a private central bank if you if you like uh where the people who who trust that particular currency use it to trade and and that's how it works so and and of course the other thing is it's not meant to be traceable although i'm pretty sure it is um but a central bank digital currency is run by a central bank therefore it's the opposite of a crypto in terms of its mo and it's also programmable which means that it's totally traceable so this is nothing like it. The only comparison is that you're just not actually changing, exchanging physical cash, and it's done through some form of digital wallet or however they're going to operate it. And so the only way that it seems that you can introduce a CBDC is for another system to collapse, and we beg for it like people begged for a vaccine to save them from COVID. So if we put all that into perspective, let's take a take a, a little bit of a, a higher view. Let's go to 40,000 feet and look down. What have we got going on at the moment? Uh, a Russia-Ukraine war, um, NATO alliances um, throwing all of their military equipment and untold printed money at um at, at the at Ukraine to fund this war. Now, interestingly, Demi, they're sending over a lot of old um military equipment, all these different countries, they're getting rid of all their old stocks, their garbage. They're, they're, imagine you buy, let's say you buy all these defence equipment and you never use it, right? What do you do with a 30-year-old bullet? I mean, right, what, right. What, so you got to get rid of it, right? You can't just shoot it at the wall. So what a perfect way to get rid of all that stuff. And so they're sending all the tanks and, and, and you know, old F-16s, not the new stuff, um, uh, different types of things. There was a report the other day that the US sent over 27 wheeled artillery equipment that may or may not have included tanks, but even the tyres um, on some of these equipment were rotted. They had to be replaced. Some of them they couldn't start. So they're just sending junk. So what does that do? It then says that the military-industrial complex says, well, you've given away all this information, all this, um, sorry, equipment. We've got to make you some new stuff. So now the yeah. military-industrial complex is, is getting pumped in. So Biden goes out and the debt ceiling, you know, dance that they do, the national credit card is now bumped from $32 billion trillion to $36 trillion. Now, RFK Jr. came out this week and said that the idea of a fiat currency, a currency backed by nothing, is perfect when you want to fund endless wars because you don't need to raise taxes. You just print more money, which is what they've done. What a beautiful way of explaining something that we've all known, but he did it in a sentence. Now, you, you then look at it. So if they've gone out and borrowed another $4 trillion and the next debt ceiling agreement is not until January of 25, well, we know that that's the period where the new president will be elected. Now, if it's Trump or a Republican or RFK Jr., you can almost bet that the Democratic establishment, who may or may not manipulate outcomes and may or may not have enough power ups, uh, you know, in the, in the Congress, um, might then say, oh, no, no, $36 trillion, it's just too much debt, we can't possibly go anymore, we're not going to, we're just going to default. Mm-hmm. And they would default because that's the system behind the system, right? Because the globalists, to take over their power, it's always about something bad happening, problem, reaction, solution, and the problem will be economic collapse. If the US defaults, the rest of the world defaults, and we have a disaster. 
And that would be the perfect time to have some sort of great reset, not what we call Nasara Jasara. That's an alternative. And that's when the CBDC comes in, where they basically hand out um, uh, you know, emergency money that can be used on um, some sort of fuel, probably not much because you've got to have a green car by then. Uh, probably not even allowed to have meat. They're probably, you know, a small grocery um, type allowance, that type of thing. That could be the worst case scenario in all of it. But it feels like and looks like that this is where we're heading because. Russia is is um, is now the victim, I believe, of four separate uh, false flag attacks so far. So if we look back, we've got Nord Stream, we've got the missile that uh, that. So if if you look at a, at a map on, um, let's work this out. I'm, I'm going in reverse here. Um, on one side you've got Russia, and the other side you've got Poland, and in the middle you've got Ukraine. So Ukraine, or so a, a missile ended up in Poland, mm-hmm. and they blamed Russia. But it would have to have flown over Ukraine to get there. Instead, Ukraine next to Poland, it dropped straight in. And then even Biden said the trajectory was all wrong to say that it came from Russia. Therefore, it could only have come from Ukraine and no one picked that up. So we have Nord Stream. We have the missile. Um, we have Kokovka Dam. And there was a fourth one, and it's already uh, that one's also escaped me right now, but I was writing it just in my Substack just today of the fourth, and I'll remember that again if I can in a moment. That's four separate attempts of a false flag against Russia. Now, why would you do that if you're already engaged in a war? And that's to try and get the world to respond to an act of aggression by Russia and to therefore bring in a NATO country. So by, by the missile getting into Poland, that's how you bring NATO in. Yeah. That's where it gets interesting. Right. So if that's the case, and that's the spark for world war. So we've never seen so much restraint from Putin because he could have reacted to any one of these three or four different events. And he hasn't. Because he so, knows he's being baited. And and the, the way to deal with being baited is to continue to stand down. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's all he can do, but at the same time, right. just attack where he has to attack. Now, Ukraine today, Trudeau's over with Zelensky, and Zelensky's announced that uh, the counteroffensive is on. Well, that's nonsense. 4,000 Ukrainians have been killed in the last three days. The counteroffensive is not happening. The uh, the Russians are moving in in many different areas. Um, and uh, and the Kukovka Dam, interestingly, on that story, way back in October of last year, uh, and there was three events, October, November and December. And basically in that period of time, Ukraine announced that should it become to a last resort, they wouldn't hesitate to blow up the Kokovka Dam. So yes. how come eight months later in all sorts of turmoil is the Kokovka Dam blown up, which, by the way, the Russians had all this military equipment that they couldn't have got out. If they had blown it up, they would have moved that equipment out and they didn't. And there's no reason for Russia to have blown it up. Um, and it's kind of like Ukraine is now explaining away these situations as as Russia is self-sabotaging its own interests in order to damage Ukraine. It's not asking for anyone else to step in. So Zelensky is not only an actor and a comedian and a puppet, but he's also an actor and a comedian and a puppet. He's he's an absolute fool. Um, it's 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 just truly shocking, and and that Trudeau who's over there in Canada. I mean, the, 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 this I cannot understand how slimy that man is, if he indeed even is a is a human. Um, you know, the, the, I was exploring last week stories of um, safe supply in Canada in this in in the um, uh, in the drug situation. They got a horrible. Um, uh, uh, drug abuse situation now in Canada. There was a terrific film from Aaron Gunn that's on YouTube, Canada is Dying, explaining the difference between the safe supply in British Columbia versus the traditional methods um, in Alberta. And uh, you've got a situation now that um, with all these poor homeless drug addicts on the street and the real problem being isolation uh, forming part of the depression, which gets leads into this drug habit, 
um, instead of working with these people and, and lifting them, they've now decided that what we'll do is we'll just supply drugs so that they don't have to go and get bad drugs or, or or dirty drugs or you know that type of stuff. So you can now go in and to a pharmacy and be given um, I think they call them dillies, which is a a, um, a high form of potent oxycontin. So these and then what they do is they then they then trade it to then get the fentanyl, which is what they want for the big hit. And that's why you're getting so many overdoses and they all, and they know, and they, and, and they were saying in this interview, we know that if we experiment with fentanyl, it's highly likely that we will overdose, but that's the risk that we take in all of this. So it's not working at all. And there's other ways that you've got to deal with other problems. And so there's Trudeau pretending that safe supply is working when it's not. He's uh, censoring the debate in the Canadian parliament this week on, um, on, on the censorship rules where he's determining that um, news uh, organisations like what we do um, cannot be heard and have to be cut out because you can only hear from the official um, you know, government speak, the Ministry of Truth. It's, it's, it's just unbelievable. We saw the same in, um, in New Zealand where Jacinda Ardern uh, basically announced that her country, it was the Ministry of Truth, they will tell you what to believe in COVID. She then stands down as Prime Minister and uh, the next thing we hear is that um, she's got a job with Prince William uh, heading up a disinformation and misinformation organisation. So she's going to choose what's information's real or not. I mean, it's the greatest uh, inside job of all time, uh, what we're watching here. it's it's um, We know it, but uh, we're now seeing how obvious it is. And one wonders when it is that uh, this thing flips or when we can get our, our, our Rosa Parks moment when some individual does something that wakes truly wakes up the world. To hear part two of this interview, please subscribe at starfirecodes.com.